Section 4 of An Interpretation of Keats Endymion by Henry Clement Notcutt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 4 The Story The story of the fourth book turns upon one strong situation which is presented with some degree of power. The situation arises from a new and irresistible attraction that Endymion feels for an Indian maiden, who now appears for the first time. After his sea adventures, he finds himself in a green forest near a placid lake, and there he hears a plaintive cry, line 40, which, as he discovers, comes from a beautiful Indian maiden who has failed to find solace in the revelry of Bacchus, line 268, and is longing for human affection. He is torn between the attraction he feels for her and his devotion to his heavenly love. The development of the situation thus presented is less effective, and one cannot but feel that the story has suffered for the sake of the allegory. Mercury comes down, and at a touch of his wand, there springs from the earth two jet-black winged steeds, on which Endymion and the maiden fly up into the regions of the sky. Line 347. There, overcome by slumber, he dreams that he is in heaven, and wakes to find himself indeed in the presence of his divine love. Line 436. In sore perplexity, he turns, now to her, now to the Indian maid, and yet, in spite of all appearance, he knows in his heart that he is not unfaithful to either. At length he finds that his companion has vanished, and soon afterwards her steed plunges down to the earth. Line 512. Endymion's steed bears him to the cave of quietude, where he fails to see the guests passing on their way to Diana's wedding feast, though he seems to have heard their song. Lines 556 and 611. His steed brings him down to earth again, and there he finds his Indian love. Line 623. Now that he feels his feet once more planted on solid ground, he determines to devote himself to this earthly human love, feeling that he has been too presumptuous in aspiring to a heavenly destiny. To Endymion's dismay, she tells him that she is forbidden to accept his love. Line 752. He sits despondent on the very spot where he had first seen the vision of Diana, and while he sits there, Peona appears line 800. She sees his downcast look, and bids him be happy, for she will rejoice that he has found such a lovely mate. He declares that he will live a hermit's life, and that Peona alone shall visit him, but expresses a hope that the Indian maid will stay with Peona, line 870. He bids farewell to them both, and they leave him, but he calls them back begging them to meet him once more that evening in the grove behind Great Diana's Temple. Line 911. The denouement forms an effective close to the story. As the sun sinks, Endymion makes his way to the temple, thinking that surely his troubles and his life must now have an ending. The two maidens are there, but as he utters his desire that heaven's will may be declared, a wonderful change takes place. His Indian love is transformed, and he sees that she is no other than his divine love, Cynthia, or Diana. They bid farewell to Peona with a promise 
that she should meet them many a time in these forests, and they vanish. Biona went home through the gloomy wood in wonderment. Its meaning. We have now to consider the meaning of this closing part of the story and its relation to the allegory as we have thus far traced it. Footnote. In his edition of the poems of Keats, Methuen, 1907, Professor de Selincourt has given a more detailed explanation of the allegory as developed in the fourth book than has elsewhere been attempted. Although the line of treatment here followed differs in some respects from that which he has adopted, I wish to record with gratitude my obligation to his interpretation, which has been of more service than anything else that I have seen in opening up the way to a fuller understanding of the allegory. End footnote. The Cry of the Indian Maiden The cry of the Indian Maiden, with which the story resumes its way, represents the cry that is always going up from humanity in all quarters of the world for sympathy and help. To Endymion, this was a new and unexpected appeal, and yet it is one to which his heart instinctively responded. So, Keats would tell us, in the development of the soul of the poet, as he knew it, the ambition to excel in poetry first took possession of him, and it was only after he had been pursuing this aim for a considerable time that a new desire began to appeal to him, the desire of doing something to serve his fellow men. This was not a new conception for Keats. In Sleep and Poetry, which had appeared in the volume published in March 1817, he outlines the same order of development. Oh, for ten years, that I may overwhelm myself in poesy, so may I do the deed that my own soul has to itself decreed. And, after sketching symbolically the way in which he would spend this period of training, he goes on to say, And can I ever bid these joys farewell? Yes, I must pass them for a nobler life, where I may find the agonies, the strife of human hearts. But a new element is introduced into the later treatment of the idea, that of the clash between the two ideals, and the doubt and perplexity of mind that is the consequence of this clash. The Conflict of Ideals So keenly did Endymion realise the trouble of the Indian maid, and so fully did his heart respond to her appeal, that he felt perplexed and troubled beyond endurance. He loved his mysterious goddess no less than before. His intense delight in the beauty of the moon was as great as ever, and these two had already appeared to him to be in strange conflict. Book 3, lines 175 to 187 For he had not recognised them as two phases of one devotion. And now, to add to his perplexity, he felt himself drawn by an irresistible attraction to the Indian maiden, to whose tale of sorrow he had listened. I have a triple soul, he cried, torn by this painful conflict of feeling. Such, Keats would have us understand, is the trouble and perplexity in the mind of the poet when he looks upon beauty of form and intensity of feeling in poetry as separate and conflicting ideals, more especially when their rivalry is complicated by a larger desire to do some service of real value to mankind. To Endymion it seems, at the moment, that he cannot but yield to the cry for sympathy and help, sacrificing all his former hopes and ideals, 
though such a sacrifice must bring death as a consequence. Thou art my executioner, and I feel loving and hatred, misery and weal, will in a few short hours be nothing to me, and all my story that much passion slew me. Line 111 The Song of Sorrow But the maiden does not see that Endymion's love for her need bring any such dire consequences in its train. Leaving this doubt unsolved, Endymion asks her about her former life, and in response she sings a song, one of the most beautiful things in the whole poem, telling of the mystery and the inevitability of sorrow in human life. She goes on to speak of her unsatisfied longing for sympathy. In the whole world wide, there was no one to ask me why I wept. Line 183 And then telling the story that is always being repeated in the history of the race, she relates how she tried to find satisfaction in the pursuit of pleasure. And as I sat, over the light blue hills, there came a noise of revellers, the rills into the wide stream came of purple hue. T'was Bacchus and his crew. Line 193 They called her to join them. Come hither, lady fair, and joined be to our wild minstrelsy. Line 226 She followed their invitation, and through every clime watched humanity yielding to the call of pleasure. But it was of no avail. Into these regions came I, following him, sick-hearted, weary. So I took a whim to stray away into these forests drear alone, without a peer. And I have told thee all thou mayest hear. Line 268 And she takes up again the song with which she began. Come then, sorrow, sweetest sorrow, like an own babe I nurse thee on my breast. I thought to leave thee, and deceive thee, but now, of all the world, I love thee best. Line 279 An unfortunate passage with a true meaning. It seems strange that after such a surpassingly beautiful rendering of one aspect of his theme, Keats should have allowed himself to lapse immediately into a strain of weak and maudlin sentiment that, for the moment, excuses the worst severity of his critics but so it is. The lines in which Endymion declares his devotion to the maiden fall as far below the normal level of the poem as did the former passage in which he expressed his passion for the unknown goddess. We feel inclined to adopt the lines that follow and to apply them to this part of the poem, to cry a triple woe that such words went echoing dismally through the wide forest, a most fearful tone line 321. But it is not difficult to recognise the intention that underlies the passage, and this is no less true and cogent than the expression of it is false and deplorable. Keats is trying to show with what irresistible force the passion for humanity may lay hold of a man when his ears and heart are open to its sorrows, and how he is impelled to put aside all other claims in order to devote himself wholly to this one service. A no less passionate devotion had filled the soul of Endymion when his mysterious goddess had last visited him. Book 3, lines 739 to 761. And, though we may well wish that both passages had been written in a manner more worthy of the genius 
that sustained Keats through so much of his work, we cannot but recognise that the parallelism in itself adds a true significance to the poem. The Cry of Woe While Endymion was pouring out his protestations of love, a voice was heard crying, Woe! Woe! Woe to that Endymion! One can find little or no help in this place towards the explanation of this incident, but if we compare it with the later passage, lines 632 and following, where Endymion again declares his readiness to sacrifice everything in order to devote himself exclusively to the newfound love, we may gain some light on its meaning. In each case he is checked, in this instance by the cry of woe, in the later one by the refusal of the maiden. I may not be thy love. Line 752. The intention, in each case, probably is to suggest that if the poet, in his passion for humanity, abandons his poetic ideals, he is committing a grave error which cannot result in good. The Steeds At this point in the story, Mercury appears and touches the earth with his wand. From it there spring two winged steeds. They evidently have a meaning similar to that of the chariot in sleep and poetry. They represent the power of the imagination. It may be noted that just as the chariot in the earlier poem appears immediately after the recognition by the poet of the necessity of entering into the agonies, the strife of human hearts, so in this case it is when he is distracted by the conflict of his feelings and his shuddering at the cry of woe that the intervention of Mercury takes place. Trusting himself to this new power, Endymion and his companion are carried aloft, far above the level of the earth. Endymion's readiness to follow divine leading. It is worthwhile turning back for a moment to note how this readiness of Endymion to commit himself to the guidance of what he felt to be a higher power, offering to lead him, is repeatedly illustrated in the course of the poem. It is suggested in each of the three original appearances, in the quickness with which he saw that some divine power was manifesting itself in the magic bed of flowers, Book 1, line 559, in his readiness to follow the cloudy Cupid flying above the well, Book 1, line 891, and again in his listening attitude before the voice called to him from the cave, and the eagerness with which he hurried in when he heard it. Book 1, line 960. But it is shown more clearly as the story proceeds. When the golden butterfly came out of the flower, he followed it with enthusiasm till it vanished. Book 2, line 66. And then, when further direction was given to him, he did not contend one moment in reflection, book 2, line 215, but fled into the fearful deep. There, where the path that he was following ended, abrupt in middle air, book 2, line 653, he threw himself without one impious word, book 2, line 659, upon the eagle that crossed towards him trusting himself unhesitatingly to this divine messenger, and caring not how perilous the adventure might seem. It was a similar instinct that led him to respond to the appeal of Glaucus for help, Book 3, lines 282 and 712, and to listen to the cry of the Indian maid, 
and as we shall see the consummation is reached when endymion explicitly declares himself ready to submit entirely to the will of heaven book four line 974 inspiration and the poet in all these instances keats is showing us by his usual method of concrete images what he regards as the real meaning of poetic inspiration there is the impulse or suggestion that appears to come from some source outside of the poet himself but if any result is to follow there must also be on the part of the poet a quickness to perceive and a readiness to respond to the promptings that come to him it is of course a truth of wider application than that which is given to it here but this is the aspect of it that belongs to the theme of the poem and the repeated reference to the idea suggests how much value keats placed upon it it was a similar idea that he had pictured in sleep and poetry when he represented the charioteer the poet as coming down in his car the imagination and while there passed before him shapes of delight and mystery and fear he leans forward most awfully intent and seems to listen and writes with hurrying glow it is a poet acting as the channel through which the divine can speak to humanity in a letter written to hayden soon after he had begun to work at this poem keats gives expression to a similar feeling thank god i do begin arduously where i leave off notwithstanding occasional depressions and i hope for the support of a high power while i climb this little eminence endymion and especially in my years of more momentous labour i remember your saying that you had notions of a good genius presiding over you i have of late had the same thought for things which i do at random are afterwards confirmed by my judgment in a dozen features of propriety is it too daring to fancy shakespeare this presider the incidents of the flight as a personal reminiscence the incidents that follow upon the appearance of mercury and the mounting of endymion and his companion on the jet black steeds though they may be considered conflicting and pointless so far as the mere story is concerned are full of significance as a revelation of the working of the poet's mind they include the flagging of the steeds at the approach of sleep the dream of endymion and his waking consciousness of the presence of his divine love his perplexity as he turns now to her now to the maiden beside him and feels drawn alike to both yet convinced that he is not unfaithful to either then comes the effort that endymion makes to rouse the steeds again the rising of the moon the vanishing of the indian maid and the entry of endymion into the cave of quietude in attempting to trace the significance of these incidents we may for the sake of clearness think of them in the first place as representing a personal experience of the poet on some single occasion starting then a little further back than the series of events outlined above we may picture him as sitting one evening and allowing his thoughts to centre round the agonies the strife of human hearts until he is led to wonder whether after all it were not better to try to do something to alleviate this suffering rather than to struggle on in the apparently hopeless effort to win fame as a poet but before long his thoughts are touched as by an inspiration from heaven he always saw ideas embodied as mr bradley justly remarks 
his imagination is roused, and, still keeping in mind the thought that had been with him before, he is carried aloft with a rush, and sees it all in a different light, under new aspects. Tired with the imaginative strain, he feels sleep coming upon him, and though he still tries to see more clearly what he is striving after, he does not succeed, and, falling into unconsciousness, he begins to dream. His dream follows the line, not of his meditations of the moment, but of the ideas that have, for a long time, dominated his outlook upon life. He fancies that he has achieved his ideals as a poet, and that he has been found worthy to join the company of those whom he has reverenced as gods. He can take part in their life, and can a little use their instruments. Footnote. There is a poem entitled A Draft of Sunshine, edited Selincourt, page 353, which Keats sent to Reynolds in a letter of 31st of January, 1818, the same letter in which he wrote out one of his most beautiful sonnets, When I Have Fears That I May Cease To Be. Endymion was, at this time, passing through the press and was receiving some final touches. It is probable that these lines refer to this part of the story, and thus have more point and value than has yet been allowed to them. End footnote. It is but a dream, and yet, when he wakes, it seems at first as if it were true, and he feels that this power is really his. He is indeed a poet. What has become of his desire to serve mankind? Must this be abandoned? In perplexity he turns from one ideal to the other, feeling that he is bound to follow each of them, yet not knowing how they can be reconciled. He calls to mind the flight of imagination which, before he fell asleep, had so magically uplifted these aspirations for service, and tries to renew this aspect of his thoughts. But a gleam of the old poetic desires that had so long haunted him comes into his mind. His passion to do something for humanity falls away, and, exhausted by the conflict of emotion through which he has passed, he sinks into a dreamless sleep. It is not, of course, intended to suggest that the experiences here outlined were necessarily confined to a single occasion. It may well have been that the desire to give some practical kind of help towards relief of human suffering developed gradually in the mind of Keats, that there was more than one occasion on which the poetical impulse that was never far beneath the surface of his consciousness, acting on this desire, lifted it up into the region of creative imagination, and that periods of exhaustion and moods of apathy intervened. The significance of the story is not bound up with any particular time scheme, but whether it pictures for us the experience of a single occasion, or one that was spread over some longer period of time, it represents a phase in the process of Keats' poetic development, and one that he regards as of more than personal significance. THE WEDDING GUESTS While Endymion lay unconscious in the cave of quietude, there passed by a skyey mask, a pinioned multitude. Line 558. They sang a song in celebration of the coming marriage feast of Diana. We are probably intended to understand by this the attitude, not so much of the general public, as that section of it which has a genuine interest in poetry, and which recognises the early dawn of a new era, such as the new romantic movement in poetry. 
Among such as these there may be confidence and rejoicing at a time when the poet himself, who has given cause for such feelings, is still far from regarding his hopes as satisfied or his aims as accomplished. He may indeed be very little conscious of the interest and pleasure that others are taking in his work. Endymion returns to earth. Soon after this, Endymion's steed descended. He found himself once more on the solid earth, and close at hand was the Indian maid. The dreams that he had cherished, the ideals after which he had striven, now appeared to him unreal, or at least hopeless of attainment, and he declared that he would put them aside and devote himself wholeheartedly to the service of his new-found love. But, to his unutterable dismay, she told him that this could not be. No such end to his perplexity and trouble was possible. He knew not how to answer her, and while he sat in a stupor of grief and despair, Peona came to greet them. The Poet and Practical Life there is little difficulty in the interpretation of this part of the story if we follow the track that has led us thus far. After a prolonged and lofty flight of the imagination, a reaction is bound to follow. The poet must inevitably come down to earth again, and once more find himself in contact with the troubles and pains of human life. And if these have before aroused his solicitude and sympathy, in the mood of such a reaction, their appeal will be stronger than ever. Poetry, especially on the side of beauty of form and expression, may seem for the time an unpractical pursuit, especially if, after trying for long months and years to attain to lofty ideals, the poet is conscious that he has always fallen short of them. I have clung to nothing, loved to nothing, nothing seen or felt but a great dream. Line 636. So he turns, with a sigh of relief, to a more direct and more practical way of helping mankind. The desires and ambitions that he has so long cherished appear now to be hopelessly unattainable, and he resolves that he will no longer be guilty of the folly of pursuing them. Against his proper glory has my own soul conspired. So my story will I to children utter and repent. There never lived a mortal man who bent his appetite beyond his natural sphere, but starved and died. My sweetest Indian, here, here will I kneel, for thou redeemed hast my life from too thin breathing, gone and past are cloudy phantasms. Cabins alone, farewell, and air of visions, and the monstrous swell of visionary seas, no, Nevermore shall airy voices cheat me to the shore of tangled wonder, breathless and aghast. Adieu, my daintiest dream, although so vast my love is still for thee. The hour may come when we shall meet in pure Elysium. On earth I may not love thee. Line 643 Footnote In a similar mood he wrote to Hayden, 11th of May, 1817. There is no greater sin, after the seven deadly, than to flatter oneself into an idea of being a great poet. End footnote. But, however welcome such a cutting of the Gordian knot may seem for the moment as a relief from the doubts and perplexities that he has been trying to face, no such resolve can be a permanent solution of his difficulties. 
the call of the divine ideal has been too clear the response has been too spontaneous the efforts to reach the ideal have been too intense to be abandoned in this way and humanity itself cannot accept of service rendered at such a cost it would involve an unfaithfulness that could but lead to death and the poet is for a time thrown back upon his perplexities and uncertainties returning to the scene of the earlier visions there is some significance in the fact that at this point of the story endymion is back again though he is unconscious of it in the very spot where he had first seen the vision that had called him out from the ordinary life of men the long process of training through which endymion had passed could not of itself make him a poet before that end could be attained he must return to the source of inspiration that had given the original impulse to his new way of life this is the essential element in the whole process without which all the rest useful and even necessary as it may be must fail of its effect for it is this inspiration that alone gives life and power to the words of the poet piona the last occasion on which we heard of piona was when she tried to soothe the spirit of endymion troubled by the early visions that he had seen and to draw him back to his former natural and healthy manner of life line nine hundred and ninety one during the period of his strange fantastic wanderings he has been far out of her ken but now that he has returned once more to the scenes of his earlier youth she comes to him with glad welcome and rejoices in the hope of his resuming a more normal mode of life there is nothing selfish in her attitude she welcomes with open heart the beautiful stranger but completely misinterprets the situation and is reduced to bewildered amazement when endymion puts all her hopeful suggestions on one side declaring that he will live a hermit life and that peona herself shall be his only visitant the perplexity of rival claims the strange impasse to which the adventures of endymion have led appears to represent in a large measure the personal experience of keats though the general situation has a wider meaning there seems to have been a time when he was greatly perplexed and harassed in his outlook upon life on the one hand the desire of making his name live in the ranks of the poets was very strong within him on the other he was oppressed by the pains and sorrows of his fellow men and longed to devote himself to their service in the days when he was working as a medical student poetry was to his mind the zenith of all his aspirations the only thing worthy the attention of superior minds such is the record of one of his fellow students already quoted but a little later we find him writing i find there is no worthy pursuit but the idea of doing some good to the world footnote to john taylor twenty fourth of april eighteen eighteen this letter reads as if he had recently cleared up the difficulty referred to above End footnote and it would appear that for a time he could see no way of reconciling the two ideals he was drawn most powerfully towards each of them so much so that he could not without pain think of forsaking either yet for the time it seemed that he could not follow them both he must choose between them still less was it possible to return to the ordinary life of men from which he had felt himself to be separated ever since he had seen the vision of poetic beauty and so 
a feeling of depression settled down upon him. His ideals were unattainable. A return to its former life was impossible. There seemed to be no way out of the tangle of contradiction. He was inclined to seek for peace in solitude and to abandon both ideals as being beyond his reach. Yet he could find no satisfaction in such a decision. To cut himself off from the aims and aspirations that had lifted him above the ordinary ways of men would not give rest to his soul. Thus far it may be that we have been shown how the struggle and perplexity worked in the mind of Keats. The denouement is finally conceived and pictures for us a truth of universal significance. Endymion, feeling the impossibility of cutting himself off thus from all that he had longed for, begged Peona to bring the Indian maid that evening to meet him once more. They were to come to the groves behind the temple of Diana. So strongly did he feel the futility of all his hopes and efforts that, at one moment, he was ready to welcome death, though at another it seemed a cruel end to what he knew had been at least a sincere striving towards the light. THE RESOLVING OF THE PERPLEXITY In this mood he approached the temple and met Peona and the Indian maid. When Peona asked him what was to happen next, his answer showed that he had reached some solution of his doubts and perplexities, the solution, that is, of willingness to submit entirely to the guidance of a higher power. Sister, I would have command, if it were heaven's will, on our sad fate. Line 975 And then, the final revelation is granted to him, and he learns, to his amazement and joy, that the goddess, whom he has so long pursued, but has never fully known, and the Indian maiden, who has called out his passionate devotion, are not rivals for his love, but are different aspects of the same being, whom he now knows in truth, and to whom he will henceforth be joined in deathless delight. So it is, Keats would tell us, when the poet comes to realise that his longing aspirations after beauty and perfection in his poetry, and his passionate desire to serve his fellow creatures, are not conflicting ideals, but are one and the same, that for him, to use faithfully and earnestly his poetic gift, is to render the highest service to mankind. Then he has become a true poet. Peona's Share It is a pleasant little touch that Peona is not shut out from a share in this joyful climax, though she fails to comprehend its meaning. The poet's ways are in a large measure ways where others cannot follow him, yet he does not lose touch with their life, and the men and women, not a small company, to whom poetry is little better than sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal, and who find it incomprehensible that a lifetime should be devoted to it, may yet have some share in the beauty and joy that it brings into human life. The Introduction to the Fourth Book The introduction to this book dwells on the way in which English poetry refusing to be merely imitative of even the best of what other lands could offer, waited until the time had come to develop its own genius, and Keats feels that the new movement in poetry, with the celebration of which this poem is largely concerned, represents the full fruition of the hopes that had so long been waiting for fulfilment. The note thus sounded is in harmony with the triumphant close to which the story finally attains. End of section.